0: The products discussed in this podcast are only available in the United States. Welcome to our podcast, The Tactical Take, where we discuss our thoughts on the markets, the opportunities and risks we're seeing, and how we're positioned in the tactical sleeves of our model portfolios. My name is Jack Janisiewicz, Model Portfolio Manager and Portfolio Strategist with Natixis Investment Managers Solutions, and I also lead our investment committee. Our multi-asset hybrid models combine strategic investments in active mutual funds with tactical positions in passive ETFs, and they reflect many of the themes I'll be discussing here today. So let's get right into it. It's all about the Fed and rate cuts. The October payrolls print came in notably softer than consensus, printing job ads of 150000 versus expectations of 180000 Revisions were strong with a net reduction of 101,000 jobs over the prior two months. Wage growth continued to moderate, printing a monthly gain of just 2 tenths of 1% versus the 3 tenths of 1% consensus. And the cherry on top that really got the narrative machine cranking, the unemployment rate ticked up to 3.9%, the highest level since January of 2022. Certainly a softer print than we've grown accustomed to, And no surprise, rates caught a massive bid on this. Digging into the details, the combination of downward revisions and the soft October print saw the three-month moving average for monthly job ads move to 204,000, stabilizing just above pre-pandemic averages of about 178,000 job ads for the past five months. We're finally normalized back to a still-strong, but more modest pace of job formation. And after an acceleration in hourly wages through the late spring and early summer, the three-month annualized pace of wage growth has returned to its pre-pandemic average as well. And lastly, hours worked to stabilize back at the pre-pandemic levels for the past seven months. That's right, the three headline figures from the establishment survey that carry the most weight all are returning to pre-pandemic levels. Let that sink in for a moment. To put it all together, we like to use the Aggregate Earnings Indicator, or more appropriately named the Household Paycheck Proxy, which is the product of payrolls times hours worked times average hourly earnings. We've spoken about this in previous podcasts, and it paints a similar picture, settling back to a 5% year-over-year basis right in line with pre-pandemic range. And whether you look at that growth on a year-on-year, three-month, or six-month basis, the story is the same. The growth in aggregate consumer spending power is back at levels consistent with 2% inflation. The bears made their case with the unemployment rate ticking up to 3.9%. But unemployment can rise for good reasons and for bad reasons. Over the past few months, unemployment has been rising as a result of increasing entrance into the labor force. A positive sign of increasing labor supply. But that reversed in October, with the rise being driven by falling entrants and offset by an increase in temporary and permanent layoffs, a bad reason. One month does not make a trend, but it's worth remembering what's been driving the unemployment rate higher. It hasn't entirely been the result of negative forces. And finally, keep in mind the UAW strike. Recall that to be included in the establishment payrolls figure, We need to have a job and also be on the job during the survey period. In October, we saw 96,000 workers with a job, but not at work due to labor disputes. That marks the highest level we've seen since the 1997 UPS strike. What happened then? The absence of workers depressed job ads for a pace of about 300,000 to a negative print of 20,000 only to be reversed the following month with a gain of 495,000 jobs before resolving back to around 300,000 over the next few months. Noise. With the UAW strikes now resolved, we could certainly be setting up for an artificially soft print in October to be reversed in November before settling back to its underlying trend. Something to keep in mind for the December 8th payroll print, and it should be noted that we were recording this as of December 7th. While there's been no shortage of noise, the data continues to suggest the labor market has, for all intents and purposes, normalized. One of the Fed's key justifications for its hawkish bias has been a tight labor market feeding into supercore service prices in particular. Powell notably kicked supercore services to the curb at the latest FOMC meeting to join the laundry list of discarded hawkish justifications they've used throughout this hiking cycle. University of Michigan inflation expectations, the Phillips curve, the beverage curve, all to name a few. It's all about seeing core PCE settle back down to 2%. With Supercore services discarded, the key focus of labor market tightness and elevated wage growth begins to lose importance. Labor markets have been steadily coming back into balance as the economy is normalized post-pandemic, and labor markets are now consistent with a 2% inflation environment. That means a tight labor market is no longer a justification to remain hawkish. And the narrative firmly shifted as a result. When it comes to policy decisions, the doves are firmly in control with growth set to moderate from a stunning third quarter print. Labor markets have normalized and inflation prints continue to soften. One thing that may be flying under the radar that needs more attention, productivity. Productivity surged according to the most recent GDP print, and this is a big deal. And not many are talking about it. Third quarter non-farm productivity came in at 4.7%, beating economists' forecasts for 4.3% and well ahead of the previous quarter's 3.5%. So what does all of this mean? Private sector workers produced a lot of stuff without spending a lot more time doing so. And this has some important implications. Yes, productivity is a tough thing to measure and to make things worse, it will likely be subject to revisions in the future. So what's going on with productivity? Heading into the pandemic, productivity surged. Economic output regained its pre-COVID level by first quarter 2021 and did so using 8 million fewer workers. With work from home, people were spending less time commuting and more time working, helping to increase that output. But this didn't last long. The massive jump in non farm productivity into the third quarter of 2020 soon reversed trend and reversed trend sharply. By the summer of 2022, productivity tanked, giving back the gains witnessed for much of the preceding years. Today, the economy is normalizing, supply chain disruptions for the most part have healed, and the investments undertaken in the midst of COVID are finally beginning to pay off. Productivity is now running at an annualized pace of 4.1% over the last two quarters, the fastest pace we've seen since the late 1990s, excluding recessions and post-recession periods. Why is this productivity boom happening? The labor market is maturing. Labor market churn and a rapid increase in job recovery was a headwind to productivity. Think about it. It takes time for a new employee to get up to speed and fully contribute, And given today's increasingly more complex environment of goods and services, we should expect rapid job growth to take time to yield results. This labor market churn and job growth likely contributed to the collapse in productivity from 2021 to 2022. But once that new employee settles in, those dividends will begin to manifest. The labor market is normalizing, and job ads are coming at a slower pace. Those new higher dividends are finally beginning to pay off. Secondly, Pandemic and bottlenecking issues are sorting themselves out. Real capital formation has been squeezed as the pandemic and bottlenecking effects clogged up the system. Real fixed investment in both residential and non-residential structures contracted for eight quarters, partly due to soaring construction costs and then getting a double whammy with the Fed hiking rates. Real fixed income investment in motor vehicles tanked as the shortage of chips adversely impacted that market. Same goes for the airline industry. Aircraft production fell off a cliff only to see a sharp rebound in air travel, forcing airlines to rapidly replenish and expand their fleets. Those issues are clearing up, and we're seeing the associated effects wane and costs reset. Plenty of deficits emerged during the pandemic era, and the catch-up period is underway in earnest. And finally, capital deepening. Bidenomics has crowded in private investment. Think of the Inflation Reduction Act, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, and the CHIPS Act. Businesses have come to appreciate the need for a more diversified supply chain and have reacted accordingly. As such, non-residential construction has undergone a shift towards industrial and infrastructure end-users and away from office, retail, and leisure sectors. The focus has shifted more in favor of investment relative to consumption, giving a near-term boost to fixed investment growth, which could very well be outpacing job growth. Why is all of this so important? Because wage growth can be broken down into a simple formula. Compensation equals inflation plus productivity growth. Rearranging the variables, we can find that faster wage growth implies stronger productivity growth, higher inflation, or some combination of both. Where are we today? Inflation is coming down while productivity is going up. And productivity is actually rising at a faster pace than inflation is falling. So if compensation equals inflation, which is falling, plus productivity growth, which is rising at a faster pace, then we can have stronger wage growth alongside falling inflation. I'll say that again. Rising productivity alongside falling inflation allows for wage growth to remain higher than many people fear. Fed Chair Jay Powell no longer seems to think that below-trend growth is necessary to bring inflation back down to target. A sharply higher unemployment rate is not required either, as a matter of fact, Inflation has trended lower over the past 12 months, all the while economic growth has reaccelerated, and with the unemployment rate remaining steadfast. Powell also has noted that the risks are now two sided. The risk of doing too much and destroying the progress that they've made on the labor side of the mandate is equal to the risk of not doing enough to get inflation back down. If productivity remains as strong as it appears, we could very well see policy easing if inflation continues to head down in a convincing fashion. Again, rising productivity alongside falling inflation allows for wage growth to remain higher than many people feared. But what really got the party started that led to one of the best months for market returns on record? The October CPI print, which confirmed what we already knew. The Fed is done hiking. Now it's all about when rate cuts begin. Headline CPI came in below consensus expectations, added core CPI. And the song remains the same. The disinflation process continues to make strides as the breadth of those disinflationary forces widen out. The headline print was expected to be weak, given the large declines we witnessed in energy prices since the September highs, but as usual, all the focus was squarely on the core print after a modestly warm advance in September. And again, the data was good and widespread. The rates market certainly took notice as rates were off to the races with twos and tens ending the day almost 20 basis points tighter and 22 basis points tighter. Wow, equities took the cue from the collapse in yields. Good news is good news. A quick look at the highlights of Powell's checklist, which we've repeatedly discussed in previous episodes. Core goods remained in deflation, albeit at a more modest pace than we've seen in recent months. Supercore services eased considerably after the spike in September, falling back to its pre-COVID trend. And housing, the last pillar of Powell's checklist, and increasingly the one that matters the most. Powell and company have stressed the importance of seeing Supercore services prices fall, But, as we've noted, the rhetoric has shifted recently as the labor market dynamics have come back into equilibrium. Supercore services inflation was a useful hawkish tool, but it's outlived its usefulness. No wonder it's fallen out of the Fed's messaging as of late as wage pressures have abated. The path of disinflation from here largely comes down to housing services. After all, they represent nearly 42% of core CPI and over 17% of core PCE. Housing has been responsible for nearly 76% of the past 12 monthly core prints. As housing goes, so goes core inflation. After a hot print in September that saw shelter costs rise at the fastest pace since May, shelter resumed its steady, albeit choppy, path lower. We all know the lag methodology behind shelter costs. There remains plenty more disinflation in the pipeline that will manifest in prints in the year ahead. The theme of disinflationary growth continues. Strong growth is not incompatible with disinflation. We've been saying it for months now, and Powell explicitly acknowledged this at the November FOMC meeting. If potential growth is temporarily higher as a result of improving labor supply, rising productivity, and easing supply chains, then growth can run above trend and not work counter to the Fed's goal to get inflation back to target. And more importantly, The improving inflation data is earning rate cuts. Yes, the Fed is still leaning heavily on higher for longer rhetoric. That's the name of the game at this stage of the tightening campaign. Keep rates steady as inflation falls, passive tightening. We can debate whether they're getting that much bang for their buck, given that passive tightening functions via inflation expectations, which remains largely normalized, and not realized inflation. In other words, with inflation expectations already having retraced largely back to pre-pandemic levels, we're not seeing that much passive tightening as a result of further declines. Listen to what Powell's telling you, though. They'll stop hiking well before inflation returns to 2% and will also cut before then to ensure they don't overshoot and risk losing all the gains they've achieved on the labor side of their mandate. Surgical cuts are coming to pull restrictive policy back to neutral, and the market is rightly reflecting that with nearly 100 basis points of cuts priced into 2024. Now, it's all about when they begin, and depending on how core PCE evolves from here, that first cut could feasibly be as early as March, an outcome that's already more than 50% priced in given the SOFR curve. We noted last month that sentiment appeared to have overshot to the bear side, and treasury yields seemed to have sold off beyond what we considered fair value, and therefore we expected a near-term bounce in risk assets. And as such, we added some high beta equity exposure for our tactical trade. Well, that one panned out even more so than we expected. But those indicators that we referenced certainly have changed. Funny what higher prices can do. Sentiment measures that began the month mired in bearish territory flipped as retail investors, advisors, and newsletter sentiment indicators all pulled a sharp 180. Inflows into ETFs and long only mutual funds hit $45 billion, the best five week run of 2023. In addition, ancillary evidence points to a sharp shift in sentiment from leverage players, specifically CTAs, who saw a significant amount of buying during this stretch. The point being, sentiment and positioning have certainly shifted aggressively during the month of November. December remains a seasonally strong period, while annual rebalancing from pension funds could see some flows from equities to fixed given the size of the recent equity outperformance. It would not be surprising to see some market chop as we push towards some key technical resistance levels, but the overall trend remains intact, higher for equities. So what do we do this month? We use the recent strength to pare back some of our overweight and small caps and emerging market debt in favor of exposure to U.S. high yield and investment grade, where we see some attractive risk-reward trade-off with carry. We also cut our cyclical exposure in industrials and rotate it back into broad U.S. large cap. The portfolio still remains slightly overweight equities with a bias towards U.S. large caps at the expense of international developed and emerging markets. Within fixed income, we remain overweight credit, increasing their exposure with the most recent ads to investment grade and high yield. To wrap up our podcast, The Tactical Take, this is Jack Janusiewicz. Hope you enjoyed the commentary and thanks for listening.
1: Important information, for listeners outside the United States, Natixis Investment Managers Distribution and Service Groups include Natixis Investment Managers S.A., Luxembourg, Natixis Investment Managers International, France, and their affiliated distribution and service entities. These entities conduct any regulated activities only in and from the jurisdictions in which they are licensed or authorized. Their services and the products they manage are not available to all investors in all jurisdictions. For additional information and important podcast disclosures for listeners outside the U.S., please consult imnatixis.com intl slash podcasts and other media. Further, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker and not necessarily those of Natixis investment managers. These views were provided as of the date of recording and will not be revised. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute investment advice or an offer to buy or sell a financial product from any Natixis investment managers entity. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. All investing involves risk, including the risk of loss. Investment risk exists with equity, fixed income, and alternative investments. There is no assurance that any investment will meet its performance objectives or that losses will be avoided. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. Performance data discussed represents past performance and is no guarantee of, and not necessarily indicative of, future results. Indexes are not investments. Do not incur fees and expenses and are not professionally managed. It is not possible to invest directly in an index. This document may contain references to copyrights, indexes and trademarks that may not be registered in all jurisdictions. Third-party registrations are the property of their respective owners and are not affiliated with Natixis Investment Managers or any of its related or affiliated companies. Collectively Natixis. Such third-party owners do not sponsor, endorse or participate in the provision of any Natixis services, funds or other financial products provided by Natixis Distribution. LLC, 888 Boylston Street, Boston, MA02199. Natixis Investment Managers includes all of the investment management and distribution entities affiliated with Natixis Distribution, LLC and Natixis Investment Managers SA. Natixis Distribution, LLC is a limited-purpose broker-dealer and the distributor of various registered investment companies for which advisory services are provided by affiliates of Natixis Investment Managers. Natixis Advisors, LLC provides advisory services through its division Natixis Investment Manager Solutions. Advisory services are generally provided with the assistance of model portfolio providers, some of which are affiliates of Natixis Investment Managers. Managers, LLC Natixis Advisors. LLC does not provide tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax or legal professional prior to making any investment decision. Member SIPC, POD 37, December, 2023. Add Tracks, 613631711. Expiration date, December 31, 2024.